I want to welcome everybody. I want to welcome those that are watching live video streaming, those that are part of our, our chapel venue. We are studying the book of Acts. We're in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, and we're studying the life of Stephen. And uh, the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts is what we've been studying for the last couple of weeks. And we're going to wrap up the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. And I've entitled the message, Standing Ovation. Uh, and you'll know more about why I gave that title to this particular message as we come to the end of the seventh chapter in our study. Before we, we dive into Scripture, I want to uh, just express my condolences to uh, David Halliday and the Halliday family. Uh, his wife, Barbara, went home to be with Jesus this past week. David is one of our elders. Uh, he's been a part of this church for decades. He's one of our educators at Trinity Christian School. He's a personal blessing uh, into my life. And they're right over here on the third row. I just want to express our condolences. And uh, there'll be a special memorial service at 3 today in the chapel celebrating this incredible woman of dignity, Barbara Halliday. Uh, our, our thoughts and prayers are are with all of you today. What makes you angry? You know, that's an important question because what angers you defines you. And how many know that there are things in life that irritate us, but they shouldn't anger us, right? Big difference. I wrote some of the things down that irritate, but shouldn't anger us. For example, a slow driver in the passing lane irritates us, but it should never anger us. Or how about the gap between your car seat when you drop something down there, like your phone? You'll never find it, right? Or some other things that irritate us, slow Wi-Fi, no? When you're trying to connect or you're trying to download something. Or how about the new Apple iOS download? That can be irritating. It really messed my phone up last week. Uh, telemarketers calling your personal cell phone. How'd you get this number? You know, these are things that irritate us, but they shouldn't anger us. And there's a difference between human anger and godly anger or holy anger. Look at what James says in chapter 1, verse 20 of his letter. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So there's a worldly, carnal human anger, and then there is a godly anger or a righteous indignation. In chapter 7 here, we're going to see anger being demonstrated by the hostile world of Stephen's day that was hostile to the gospel of Christ and the preaching of Jesus and the preaching of truth and righteousness then as it is now today. Yet the Bible talks a lot about righteous anger, righteous indignation. We should never uh, disguise human anger and make it seem as though it's righteous anger. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.26, it says, Be angry, just don't sin. So there are some things that we should get angry about and angry over. I was reading, as I'm reading through Scripture, I just finished reading through the book of Nehemiah, and I was reminded as I was reading the book of Nehemiah that there were times that Nehemiah, this great leader, he got angry, not because people were hurling personal insults against him, no, he was angry because of the extortion that was going on amongst his countrymen, how the religious, uh, the political leaders of his day were taxing and overtaxing the people when they were going through tough economic times, they were going through a famine, and they were, they were uh, charging them interest on their loans, which was condemned in Scripture by God. And so Nehemiah rightfully got angry, addressed the situation, and 
corrected it. That's righteous indignation. And then I thought about Moses and, and how Moses got angry at the idolatry of God's people. When he came down from the mountain with the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, and he, he threw them to the ground and he broke them in a fit of righteous indignation. I thought of Jesus and how he got angry when he walked into the temple and he saw the misuse and the abuse and the people being taken advantage of by the religious leaders and he kicked over their money tables and he drove out uh, the money changers from the temple. Righteous indignation rose up. In the book of Revelation, Jesus gets angry at spiritual lukewarmness. Jesus said, and it says of Jesus in, in Revelation 3, I would that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. So there's holy anger, and then there's unholy anger. When I think of unholy anger or godless anger, I think of Cain. Uh, Cain, in the, in the book of Genesis, he was the first one to exhibit anger, anger towards his brother Abel because his brother was righteous and he wasn't righteous. And the descendants of Cain are still alive and well in the world today, demonstrating their anger against those who speak on God's behalf, demonstrating their anger against those who stand for truth and stand for righteousness. That's what Stephen was doing in Acts chapter 7. The longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts is the sermon that Stephen was preaching. We've looked at it for the last couple of weekends. He preached about Abraham as an example of faith. He preached about Joseph as an example of, of belief in God. He preached about Moses, and we left off last week with talking about Moses and his obedience and how Moses is an example to us, and we're going to pick up where we left off. But before we do, there's one more verse of Scripture that I want to show you. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, and it says this. This is what Paul instructed Timothy and all the pastors to do when the, when the saints of God would gather together on the Lord's Day. Until I get there, focus on reading the Scriptures to the church. Encourage the believers and teach them. I know there are at least three things that we should do every time we come together in church. And one of the three important things that we should do as a congregation when we come together is the reading of Scripture. If you come to church and the Bible is not mentioned and Scripture is not read, how many of you know we really haven't had church then, right? Because the foundation of a church service and an experience with God is the reading of Scripture. I've heard pastors say before, I hope I've never said this, I don't think I have to my knowledge, but they'll say, turn with me to a, a particular passage in Scripture, and I don't have time to read all of it, but I'm going to read one small portion of it. Well, why, why don't you have enough time to read all of it? Are you with me? I mean, if, if the number one thing we could do is read Scripture, then we should be reading Scripture. And then everybody needs to be encouraged. Listen, I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're going through. I know we have, as mentioned a moment ago, we have families in our church that are walking through a, a season of grief and of grieving, and you need encouragement. Maybe you're going through a financial struggle. You need encouragement. Maybe you're going through a marital struggle. You need encouragement. Maybe you're battling some sickness or a disease or some bad news that you just heard of. Maybe you're struggling with a, a, a teenage son or a teenage daughter. I don't know what you're going through, but the Lord knows what you're going through. And when we come to church, not only should we hear the reading of Scripture, but we should be encouraged. Amen? 
How many of you believe you should come to church and not be discouraged, but be encouraged, right? You don't need courage taken out of you. You need courage poured in you. And then, by the time you walk out of service today, you should have learned something, at least one thing. Turn to your neighbor and say, I, I'm anticipating to learn something today. Go on, tell them. I'm anticipating learn, to learn something today. I'm going to learn something. All right. So, we're going to read a lengthy section of Scripture, but I believe as we read it, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. I believe your, your faith's going to increase. I believe God can bring healing and blessing in your life and my life as we honor and esteem His Word. So here we go, Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 34. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Now go, for I am sending you back to Egypt. So God sent back the same man, Moses, his people had previously rejected when they demanded, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and savior. And in that way, Moses was also a type of Jesus Christ. And by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, he led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years. Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. So this was a messianic prophecy. This was a prophetic uh, promise God gave Moses about the coming of Jesus. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness, when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us for the Ten Commandments. But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. That's while he was up 40 days, 40 nights on the mountaintop talking to God, receiving the Ten Commandments. They got restless. They got restless and wanted other gods to follow. Are you kidding me? Verse 41. So they made an idol shaped like a calf, and they sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing, over this thing they had made. Then God turned away from them and abandoned them to serve the stars of heaven as their gods. In the book of the prophets, it's written, Was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No. You carried your pagan gods, the shrine of Molech, the star of your god, Rethan, and the images you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far away as Babylon. Our ancestors carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory, and it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. Can we thank the Lord for the reading of, of Scripture? We honor you, Lord, and we honor the Holy Scriptures. So all of this is Stephen preaching to those who were very familiar with everything that was coming out of his mouth. Now, you need to know that Stephen was given a, trans, he was given an, 
a translation of Jewish history, not an interpretation. Why do I say that? Because if you compare what Stephen preached here in Acts 7 to the record of Israel's history in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible, you'll find there are some differences. There are about 12 slight variations of how, jo of how Stephen tells the story and how the story is actually recorded in the Old Testament because he was not given an, a, a translation but an interpretation of what was going on and what occurred. So in this history lesson, lesson, he's given his closing remarks and he's about ready to close the deal in his message. And he's getting their attention. And remember, he's reminding them, hey, Abraham served God without the benefit of Jerusalem. Abraham served God without the benefit of the temple. Abraham served God without the benefit of the Torah. Before there was a city of Jerusalem, before there was a beautiful temple, before there were the written scriptures or the holy scripture, the holy Torah, Abraham had a relationship with God. Joseph in Egypt had a relationship with God. Moses had a relationship with God and obeyed God. And oh, by the way, just like you all rejected Moses and all the prophets that came after him, nothing has really changed. So he continues, verse 48 of Acts 7. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands, as the prophets says. says Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? asked the Lord. Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both heaven and earth? You stubborn people! Oh, he's bringing it home now. Don't you know he just got all their attention? Now comes the application of Stephen's sermon. And he says, you stubborn people, you hard-hearted, stiff-necked people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. Speaking of Jesus. You deliberately disobeyed God's law even though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by, what, by Stephen's accusation and they shook their fist at him in rage. What angers you defines you. These religious leaders got angry at the sermon that Stephen was preaching right at them because it was hitting home. And Stephen sets an entirely new tone in Christian preaching. The style of Stephen became popular and the preferred method of preaching during the historic revivals in early America the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, preachers like George Whitfield that many of our founding fathers heard preach and were struck or cut in their hearts by the style and the content of what these revivalists used to preach in the early days of America.
So powerful was the preaching that when the French philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville traveled to America to discover the secret of what made this nation so unique and what made this nation great, he walked through the halls of Congress. He visited our capital cities. He walked through our factories at that time and our places of business and our shops. But it wasn't until Alexis de Tocqueville walked into our cathedrals and in his own words, he heard the thundering preachers of righteousness that he penned these famous words and this famous line is attributed to him. He said this, America is great because America is good. When America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. And what made America good? It was the preaching of truth and righteousness under the conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit that awakened the soul of this nation and brought this nation to a place of righteousness. I'm here to say to you again, church, we need some thundering preachers of righteousness like Stephen, who directed his message in a pointed way and accused those guilty of offending God. Now, will people just take that lying down? I don't think so. <laughs> Today, people get angry at the things they shouldn't get angry over. And then the things that we should get angry over, we don't get angry over. And the same spirit that started with Cain way back when, alive and well in the days of Stephen, is still alive and well today. The anger and the hostility that will be leveled against you if you take a stand for righteousness, if you take a stand for truth, if you take a stand for Jesus in your generation. Let's continue verse 55 of Acts 7. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. Let, let's say that, read that first part out loud together. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. Say it again. But Stephen... Full of the Holy Spirit. Everyone else around him, they were full of anger. They were full of indignation. They were full of hatred for Stephen and the Jesus that Stephen was preaching about and the righteousness that Stephen was preaching about. But not, not Stephen. He was full of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes all the difference. You know, we, we, need, we, need, we need pastors who are full of the Holy Spirit. We need preachers who are full of the Holy Spirit. We need spiritual leaders who are full of the Holy Spirit. We need educators who are full of the Holy Spirit. We need businessmen and businesswomen who are full of the Holy Spirit. We need deacons who are full of the Holy Spirit. We need elders who are full of the Holy Spirit. We need churches that are not full of people, but churches that are full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, no, you can have a church full of people, but void and empty of the Holy Spirit, or you can have a church that's half empty, and yet everyone's full of the Holy Spirit. It's better to have a church full of people that are full of the Spirit than a church simply full of people. Amen. To be full of the Holy... You know, so many people run on empty. So many people are running, on, running low on the Spirit of God. But not Stephen. He was full of the Spirit, Holy Spirit. And he gazed steadily into heaven, and he saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing. Everybody say Standing. Not sitting, 
Now, the book of Hebrews, which is an, an incredible book written to the Hebrew people by a Hebrew, and it solidifies and validates that Jesus indeed was Messiah, that his lineage could be traced all the way back to Adam. That in order to be a priest, your lineage had to be traced back to Aaron. In order to be a king, your lineage had to be traced back to David. And according to the natural genealogy of Jesus, it's all verifiable, it's all traced back. He was not only a prophet, he was a priest, and he was a king. The, the, uh, the threefold ministry of Jesus, he's a prophet, a priest, and a king. Now you see, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, you could be a priest or you could be a king, but you couldn't be a king priest. Too much power. You could be a king, but you couldn't be a priest. You could be a priest, but you couldn't be a king. But Jesus is both king and priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a mysterious individual in the Bible, spoken about uh, in the book of Genesis and also in the book of Hebrews. Without mother, without father, without beginning of days, the Bible says. Who was this Melchizedek? Was he a ghost, a phantom? Was he some mysterious individual? No, he had a biological father. He had a biological mother. But it wasn't recorded because Jesus came like Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a type and shadow of Jesus Christ, king and priest. And when Abraham met this mystery fellow by the name of Melchizedek in the book of Genesis, after he had defeated the five kingdoms that had come against Sodom and Gomorrah, and he reclaimed his, his nephew Lot and all of the money, wealth and all of the women and, and slaves that were taken. When, when he met Melchizedek, they had communion together, Abraham did, and he gave 10%. He gave a tithe of all that he had to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek embodies the ministry of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. His prophetic ministry was his earthly ministry. His current office that he sits in is his priestly ministry because the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father where he ever liveth to make intercession for you and for me. As our great high priest, as he's referred to in the book of Hebrews, as our great high priest. And after Jesus had finished his work, the Bible says he sat down at the right hand of the Father. How many know that you don't sit down till the job's done? If your boss comes in and sees you sitting down, the job better be done. Or maybe you have a job where all you do is sit all day. Then you should stand every now and then. When the job's done, stand up. Amen. <laughs> so Jesus is seated, which means what? My work's done. Now yours has begun. I go to the Father, and uh, the works I do, did, you shall do in greater works because I go to the Father. So now it's our turn. It's our turn to do our, our, our work for the Lord. So he sat down. To my knowledge, this is the only time in Scripture post-resurrection where the Bible says Jesus is standing because he's seated. So the question is, why is he standing? He's standing because he's about to welcome his servant Stephen into glory, the first Christian martyr of the New Testament church. Now, how many of you know, how many know it takes a lot to impress Jesus? It takes a lot to impress Jesus. Remember uh, in the Gospels, the highest compliment Jesus ever paid, who did he pay the highest compliment to? John the Baptist. He said, of all the men born of women, none greater than John the Baptist. Wow. Remember the, the Syrophoenician woman? Mark 7, I believe. She had a, a daughter grievously vexed by a demon, and she pleaded with Jesus to heal her, do her daughter. You know what Jesus said? 
You're not going to believe this. He said, woman, it's not right to give the children's meat to dogs. He's calling this poor woman basically a dog. I mean, no, that would be all over CNN and MSNBC and, and all the news outlets. To all, I mean, it would be trending on Twitter. Jesus calls woman dog. Jesus calls immigrant woman dog. Because she wasn't of the Jewish race. And he came first for the Jewish people. She was not under covenant. She deserved no blessing, at least not yet. Not yet. And so he said, it's not right to give the children's bread to dogs. But this woman, she, doesn't get, she didn't give up easily. This woman was not a victim. This woman did not go through life with a victim mentality. Even though the glorious Savior just insulted her, at least it looked that way on the surface, but it really wasn't that. He wanted to bring faith out of this woman. You know what she said? She said, yeah, you're right, but even dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Woo! What an answer, lady! And that so impressed Jesus. You know what he said? I mean, I don't, I don't know that he, that, he, that he had this expression on us, but he probably went like... But he did say this, woman, because of that saying, because of what you said, go your way, your daughter's healed. It takes a lot. What I'm saying is it takes a lot to impress Jesus. Faith impresses Jesus. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And Stephen demonstrated the purest, most glorious expression of faith. He was willing to take a stand for Jesus, to take a stand for righteousness, to take a stand for truth. And because of that, Jesus was taking a stand for Stephen. And it says he saw the glory of God. He didn't see God. You know why Stephen didn't see God, at least not yet? Because no one can see God and live. So God was shrouded by his glory because a human being cannot see God. But he was able to see Jesus. And if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How I many know all we need to see about God, we can look in the face of Jesus and see God because Jesus is God in human form. Come on, church, amen. We saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, this is Stephen now, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. To the Jew, blasphemy. And they put their hands over their ears and they began shouting and they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul, who becomes the subject moving forward in the book of Acts. Saul at this time hated Jesus Christ. Saul of Tarshish at this time hated the cross of Jesus Christ. Saul at this time hated and despised Christians. He devoted his life to kill, persecute, and apprehend and arrest Christians until he himself met Jesus on the road to Damascus. It's so true, church. The blood of the martyr is the seedbed of revival. 
and he was a witness to the stoning of Stephen, and something happened. A seed was planted, or a seed was watered that eventually God gave increase to. And it goes on to say uh, that as they stoned him, Stephen, he prayed. And what did he pray? Let's say it out loud together. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In the last verse of Acts 7, here's how it closes. Let's read it out loud together. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Wow. That's some holy ground. That's some sacred ground. See, I don't believe that day the Lord granted Stephen's enemies the pleasure of killing Stephen. Oh, they stoned him, and he felt every stone that hit him. But I believe just before he breathed his last that the Lord ejected his spirit and soul out of his body and brought him into heaven. And there was Jesus, the first one, to welcome Stephen and to greet Stephen in glory. Because Stephen has an honor that no one will ever have, the honor of being the first official martyr of the New Testament church, but not the last by any stretch of the imagination. Let me share some alarming statistics with you. This is from opendoorusa.org, and I would encourage you to go there on a regular basis. Make it one of your favorites in uh, your Safari folder. But each month, here's how Christians around the world are being persecuted. Each month, Christians are killed, 322 every single month, every single month for their faith. 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed every single month. 772 forms of violence are committed against Christians, such as beatings, abductions, rapes, arrests, and forced marriages, simply because you profess faith in Jesus Christ. You know, a new study from the Media Research Center revealed that mainstream media devoted six times as much airtime to the covering of the recent death of Harambe, the gorilla, than the media did in the gruesome Islamic State decapitation of 21 Coptic Christians in Libya this past year. Imagine more coverage in the death of a gorilla than the death of innocent Christians whose heads were taken off simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But I want you to know what gets Jesus to stand on his feet and what gets Jesus to give people like Stephen and others a standing ovation. It's what Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 32. He said, if you'll confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. He went on to say, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. Stephen was willing to take a stand for Jesus and confess him before men. And Jesus was simply returning the favor and stood on Stephen's behalf. I believe it's time for us as Christians to be willing in a loving way, but in a forceful way, to take a stand for Jesus 
in our generation, to take a stand in public universities and, and in, in, in public uh, educational facilities, to take a stand for Jesus in business, to take a stand for Jesus amongst our friends, our relatives, our family, to take a stand wherever God leads you and wherever you represent Christ. There are times when it's required that you and I must do what Stephen did and we must take a stand for Jesus Christ and confess him before man. And if we'll confess him before man, he will confess us before the Father. Can we thank him for that? That's the promise that he gave all of us. And I just want to challenge us. The world has always been and will always be angry at the cross. It first angers us before it humbles us. And the hostility is growing in our world and in our country. And we must be reminded that we must never be angry at others. We must never take it personal. You see, Stephen was never more like Jesus than with his dying breath. He said, don't lay this sin against their charge. He could have. He could have died filled with anger, bitterness, and resentment against those God-haters out there, but he didn't. He said, Father, don't lay this sin against their charge. Isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that what Jesus said? One of the seven final statements that came out of the mouth of Jesus as he hung on the cross is when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If Jesus could forgive those who nailed him to the cross, spat upon him, bludgeoned him, whipped him, and if Stephen could forgive those who threw stones at him to take his life from him, how much more should we forgive those who have sinned against us. That it is so deadly and toxic and dangerous to go through life harboring ill feelings towards another human being, holding on to a grudge, holding on to unforgiveness. Yeah, but Pastor Carl, if you knew what my father did to me, or if you knew what my mother did to me, or if you knew what my siblings did, if you knew what so-and-so, if you knew what that boss did, if you knew what that church did, if you knew what that person did to me, I would never, ever want to excuse, justify, or rationalize what anyone has ever done to any of us to harm us or to hurt us in any way. You talk about things that make you angry. I'll tell you the things that make me angry. I was telling my sons this past week, I said, I'm, I'm not of the 21st century. I'm a man of the 20th century. I, I remember growing up as a little boy watching cowboy movies. Randall Scott was one of my favorite Western actors. And I was formed, my, my, my personal constitution, my morality was formed by guys like Randall Scott because in every one of the Western movies I saw, he was the good guy, not the bad guy. He came to the defense of women. He would spend all night in a cave with another man's wife and wouldn't touch her because she was married to another man until her husband died and then he married her. I'm talking about old-fashioned morality. I'm a man of the 20th century when marriage used to be between one man and one woman. I'm a man of the 20th century where laws protected women and children from perverts from going into women's bathrooms where women and children should only be. Men should go into men's bathrooms. Women should go into women's bathrooms. But now, now, you say that in Oregon, you will be fined. You will be arrested. I'm sorry, I'm not a man of the 21st century. They had to drag me into this century kicking and screaming. 
and I would like to go back, but I know I can't go back. So while I'm here, I'm going to remind everybody, there's right, there's wrong, there's truth, there's error, there's heaven, there's hell, there's a God, there's a devil. Those are the things that anger me. It angers me to see men exploiting women and children. When men have a God-given duty and right from God Almighty, their creator, to be the defender and the protector of women and children. That's what angers me. And what angers you defines you. And I think we should get angry at the things we should be angry at, and we shouldn't be angry at the things that we shouldn't be angry at. This is not personal. My anger is not vented towards any individual because I know that Jesus can change a pervert. He can change a sinner. He can change a lost person. But you need to hear the message preached till it makes you so spitting mad, it cuts your heart. And then when it cuts your heart, the blood of Jesus can fill your heart and give you a blood transfusion and change your life from the inside out. You gotta get mad at the preacher before you get glad. That's the preaching that built the greatest nation, the world has ever seen. And if we want to get back to God, we need, as, as the great revivalist D.L. Moody said, light a fire in the pulpit. Because once you light a fire in the pulpit, it'll spread to the pews, it'll spread to the homes, it'll spread to the businesses, and it will engulf a nation. Once again, God bring us our third great awakening. We pray and ask humbly in Jesus' name. You're never angry at people. Angry at sin, yeah. Be angry. Just don't sin. What angers you defines you. Forgive. Forgive. Not for that person's sake. Not because they are necessarily deserving of it. It's for your own well-being. It's for your own spiritual, physical, and mental health to walk in forgiveness and to not hold a grudge. Take a stand for Jesus. I did some research. You know, the longest standing ovation. I, I don't know if you've ever had a standing ovation. Maybe you gave a speech at school or maybe some athletic event or maybe some musical recital or, uh, or some public speaking. And, and if you've received a standing ovation, God bless you. But the longest standing ovation recorded was 80 minutes. It was an encore of the world-famous Placidio Domingo, which he took after his performance more of, uh, of uh, Venice in Othala in Vienna, July of 1991. 80 minutes, a standing ovation for 80 minutes. I would have to say that's the longest standing ovation, but not the most impressive. The most impressive was when Jesus, who was seated at the right hand of the Father, stood up, opened up heaven, for just that moment and allowed Stephen as the rocks were hitting him to look up and say I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the glory of God what a moment that Stephen experienced and in that moment he said it's gonna be alright I'm going home to be with my Savior I don't know what the days hold ahead for us I know we're living in crazy times. I know that my heart broke when I read just in the news just yesterday. I don't mean to offend your sensibilities, 
But as the world burns, we're not going to pretend everything's okay when we come to this church. If you want to go to a church that pretends on Sunday mornings everything's fine and the world is not burning, then you're in the wrong church. But if you want to hear the truth and hear how we can respond in faith, then I want you to know you're welcome here and you're in the right place. But listen to me. Canada, Canada just passed a law that made it legal, legal for people to do it with animals. Now listen, 30 years ago, my favorite preacher, one of my favorite preachers, Dr. Lester Sumrall, Lester Sumrall went on to be home with Jesus. He wrote a book, The Seven Last Signs of the End of the Age. I remember reading that book and the first five signs of the end of the age, I could see, yeah, they're okay. But 30 years ago, the last two signs that he said the Lord showed him, because he, he was a prophet, the last two signs, there would be widespread acceptance of homosexuality. 30 years ago, I said, that'll never happen. It's here. And the seventh thing he said, there would be an acceptance of bestiality, which Scripture condemns, vehemently God condemns, in the book of Leviticus and throughout all Scripture. Canada just passed a law making it okay. We are sick. And that sickness is a virus, and it's spreading to the shores of America. And in Canada, it doesn't have to go over the ocean, just over a hill. And we must be on guard, alert, awake, and passionate in our devotion for Jesus. Listen, church, Stephen had a faith worth dying for. Do we at least have a faith worth living for every moment of every day? And do we have a life worthy of the death that Jesus died for you and me? Or was his blood, God forbid, God forbid, was his blood shed in vain where your life is concerned or where my life is concerned? I trust and I pray and I hope that's not the case. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we humbly come before you. We know the answer to the ills of our world, the answer to the problems in our world, the answer to the conflict in our own hearts and souls is Jesus and his shed blood on Calvary, without which there can be no remission of sins, but there's power in the blood, power in the blood to cleanse, power in the blood to forgive, power in the blood to transform. And Lord, we thank you for that blood being applied to our consciences, to our hearts and our souls today. If any have sinned, let them confess their sins because God is faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. With heads bowed and eyes closed, ask the Lord what he would have you do with the story of Stephen, with the sermon of Stephen, and with the example of Stephen. Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today in this service what is it that you're asking me to step out in faith and to do, Lord? Give me the grace to be obedient. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you can know his love, grace, and forgiveness right here, right now. Say this prayer out loud with the rest of us. Say it with your own mouth. Mean it from your own heart. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, 
You're now my father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and give me strength to live for you, to serve you, to stand for you all the days of my life, beginning today, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?